Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it is a pleasure to welcome you to our podcast here at Optimal Bio. In the room with us is Dr. Greg Brannon. He is the medical director and owner, a partner and patient here at Optimal Bio is Jim Baker. He's with us and a very special guest, Dr. Hamid. He, we've talked to him once before. He's involved in compound pharmacy. And if you're like me, you're probably going, what is that? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So to all of you, gentlemen, thank you for being here today. Dr. Hamid, why don't you start? What is compound pharmacy? What is it all about? Um, compounding pharmacy is um, a, a method of making medications that will fit the needs of an individual patient. When you mix two or more things together, you're um, based on a, an order from a physician or a provider, you're compounding medication to fit that, that person. Compounding is not new. It's been with us since the origins of, of time, recorded history. However, um, with the advances in science and technology, we're constantly learning and how to improve quality, how to deliver that same care better to the patient. Well, I'm very knowledgeable about the pharmaceutical industry. That's what I, you know, for most of us, that's what we deal with. So when you're talking compound versus the traditional and I guess that's more traditional than the pharmaceutical industry to say, what's, what's the difference? What are we talking about? Absolutely. So I think the distinction comes from whether you're manufacturing or creating a dosage of a medicine for all or whether you're doing it to, to uh, fit one person. So when we manufacture something such as amoxicillin, we cannot have too many doses because those factors are huge, there's a lot of cost involved and all. So there are certain dosages and the physician tries to match the patient to the, to the existing dose. Regularly, we either underdose or overdose a medication. Sometimes it's not a big deal, sometimes it is. Compounding is different. This is where the physician can pinpoint and target A, exactly the ingredient or ingredients that he or she would, would um, decide on, and B, deliver them into the dosage form and the dosage amount that the patient needs. So in other words, in compounding, we don't manufacture anything. We make the medication to fit that individual patient. All right, where do you get the ingredients? Absolutely. Well, it's important to know, Bill, that about um, 60% of the ingredients are uh, imported from outside of borders, our borders here in the U.S. So rarely there's really things made here. So we get our ingredients from companies across the world. They're the very same companies in many cases that, that um, the big pharma gets their ingredients from. So they come from manufacturing facilities that are registered and inspected by the FDA and other regulate, regulating bodies. And everything that, that uh, operations like mine or other reputable compounding pharmacies get does come with a certificate of analysis that meets or exceeds certain established guidelines that, uh, that we work with. Well, let me bring in Dr. Greg Brandon now. Let's talk about compound uh, ingredients and, and how it impacts the body. Well, the thing about it is you want to take a compounded medication or a hormone that is as natural, and I mean natural, the actual structure that our body recognizes. You don't want to recognize it as foreign. So that's why in our particular field, we're looking at testosterone. There are, there are certain ways you could actually manufacture that that can get in the body in different routes that after it gets rid of the non-identical form, you have that. But what we like to look like that is have it one that's purely the set, the actual structure called 17-beta testosterone. When you talk about other things, you talk about antibiotics, they have certain functions that work against bacteria. So therefore they're attacking the bacteria, not our body, but then our body will actually 
The best antibiotics actually our body makes. Our body makes antibiotics, antiviral, and antifungal over. These other things just, just help enhance that when needed. Well, Dr. Hamid, let me go back to you about this very same question. I, I tend to pick up that one of the important things about compound drugs is that you're making it specifically to an individual. Is that really the most important part in how it impacts the body? Yes, absolutely, because we're all, now Bill, we understand that we're all not built the same. You know, we, we have different uh, body types. We also we also have different genes. We have different enzyme systems. So if um, you have a group of patients, say 10 patients given the same dose and, and amount of the medicine, we're all gonna process it differently. We know that as metabolism. So it's very important that we pinpoint and try to address what that individual patient needs are and address that. For instance, uh, consider two children, one who is autistic and the other one who is not. Now we typically don't give them the same exact medication if we can help it. Consider another example, a nine pound cat and a, a 50 pound dog. In compounding world, we also do compound for, for animals. We compound for humans and animals. So you don't treat them the same way because our metabolisms are different and we're just made differently. FDA approved? Compounding medications are not FDA approved because they don't need to be, and here's why. FDA exists to make sure that something that's out on the market is both safe and effective. But because compounding does not manufacture anything and they're made for the um, particular person, they don't fall under that. Just because they are not FDA approved, compounding medications that is, that doesn't mean they're unsafe and, and um, unproven. Uh, it might be surprising to some to learn that, for example, morphine sulfate tablets and injections are not FDA approved. Now, or we will use that regularly in severe pain when somebody has a surgery, accident, what have you. Can I talk somebody out of taking morphine sulfate when they're in pain because it's not FDA approved? Probably not. Uh, digoxin that regulates the heart is not FDA approved. Up until a few years ago, even Synthroid, the medication for um, that, that deals with hypothyroidism was not FDA approved, but we have been using them for a long, long time without any major issues. Okay, I went in real quick on that. Sure. This is important. The actual ingredients that he uses to make the compound a medication is FDA approved and USP approved. So the ingredients are, the final product is not because it's not manufactured. Billy, let me, yes, sorry to interrupt. Question, let's talk about progesterone, okay. right? So my wife's on it. Um, she goes to you now, Dr. Amid, for, the, uh, for the, the drug. And what's the difference between the compounding drug and the pharmaceutical manufacturing drug? I'm gonna go first and you answer why I picked you. When you look at natural progesterone in the body, the actual structure, it binds the receptor site in the cell to do its function, it lasts about 30 days. Provera, which is a synthetic progestin, binds for over six months. In fact, that was the chemical that was in the famous study in 2002 that said increased breast cancer in women in, by 26% in America, the WHI study. Now, when I prescribe progesterone, I'm not gonna subscribe a progestin. I'm at the exact same structure. And why I want a compound is I want no other ingredients that are not necessary that could actually have problems such as peanut allergies or things like that. Now, Dr. Dr. Min, why we use him is because? 
<laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I'm honored to be a part of the team, yes. So um, um, getting back to, to a different angle on that question is, in this case, progesterone, USP micronized progesterone, is commercially available only and only in two strengths. You either get A, 100 milligrams, or B, 200 milligrams of progesterone, which as Dr. Brandon mentioned, is it, it's in um, an, um, a peanut oil media. And it has other things that are really hard to pronounce. Anyways, what if in case of your wife, for example, she doesn't need those, but she really needs 150 milligrams. What if she needs 80 milligrams? What if she needs 250 milligrams? These are oil-filled capsules. There's no way to cut one out and get the partial dose out of it. So it's literally impractical. Um, so this is another benefit of compounding that we can custom tailor it to what the, the person needs. So then on that question, one more follow-up, how do you, in this case to Dr. Brandon, how do you know what the actual patient needs? Well, you look at the levels we start with. We look what optimal levels are. The goal in, say, a woman who's postmenopausal is that we try to mimic the luteal phase of a woman, and that level's around five. So I know I want to get to that point. In some of the medications, such as uh, Prometrium, there's been a study showing that the ones that are either 100 milligrams or 200 milligrams, when you actually look at the papers, the full dose is not in there. So I don't know exactly what the patient's getting. Um, so what I look at is, and then I look at symptoms, breakthrough bleeding, not breakthrough bleeding, balance with my estrogen levels. So I put it all together. We have an algorithm that does that. But then I know that if I need X dose, we'll say, 250, I know Dr. Amy can make that dose. And then we follow up with labs to see where we're at. So we have two things we're looking at. We're looking at subjective data. Am I bleeding or not? Well, it's actually objective. So, and then a real number. So if I get a number that say is 4.3, but there's no breakthrough bleeding, that's great. If I get a number that's 5.1, well, maybe she needs more. Dr. Me can make now 275. Absolutely, and one more thing that I'd like to add, that lucid explanation is that, so here we're focused on the active ingredient only. Now let's remember, for any, any medication dose also does have an active ingredients, also, uh, which, which um, dictate the delivery mechanism. Now we do know that if you take that same progesterone dose, for example, 200 milligram dose, if you take it in an immediate release format, you're gonna get a certain level. But if you make it into a long acting, you get a different level. For some patients, the long acting is the correct one. We, we typically do that with thyroid medication. So we have a lot of room to engineer the medication to, uh, um, again, hit, uh, um, help uh, fit the patient's individual need. Is compound drugs, are they becoming more popular? It would seem after this discussion they should be if they're not. Yes, we have been, actually we've seen a surge over the past 20 years in, in uh, uh, demand for compounding. And this is really driven by by the, uh, the people becoming more educated about their own healthcare and realizing that there are options. Uh, and I wanna point out that compounding is not in, comp in competition with or competing against the commercially available medications. They're both vehicles, they have their places in therapy. But compounding does allow something, some things to be fine-tuned better. And yes, there has been a surge and an increase because of that realization. I'm gonna jump into that. The FDA does its work, I understand what that does. But when you look at the CDC of the number four cause of death in America, it's FDA approved medication. And they say only about 10% of the adverse effects are actually even uh, actually quantified and, and, and you know, uh, calculated. 
It's not saying they're bad, but the, well, he talked about why is there such a range there? Because the dosage range, one size fits all, may not be the benefit, right? You talked about, uh, you know, like Hippocrates, you know, the dose of something makes it lethal or not lethal, whatever you do. So that's why I just have a stamp approval, it's FDA approved, look at Vivox, look at other things down the line. We just can't say that. So it's important to understand that we know that individualized treatment is the most optimal. And that's what I wanna focus on. You asked, is it getting more popular? Mm-hmm. Um, I met Dr. Amit about 20 years ago and uh, we, we were talking and I said, hey doctor, I see no difference between the two. And I was, my arrogance led to my ignorance. And the more you look at the science, the more you look at the data and see it now over my 30 years of experience, I said, well, there is a difference. But what I'm looking for is I want the person, the individual to be as much knowledgeable, not just defer to experts. You could be an expert when you educate yourself. So we're finding that individual choice and say, hey, I give you a dose, a standard dose of Provera, but doc, I'm still bleeding or I'm gaining weight. I just suck it up, it's all you have. No, we know there's other things we can do with that. That's why, to me, I believe it's gaining because I believe in general, the consumer, whatever the field is, is becoming more knowledgeable, expecting the best. Well, see, you, Dr. Brennan, you take the individual and everyone is unique, and that's how you treat them. Are all doctors starting to do that, Dr. Hamid? Are you seeing more doctors open to that? I'm seeing uh, the, the trend is very minimal, it's gradual, uh, but we have, to, we have to remember that in both in medical textbooks and in pharmacy textbooks, for example, going back to Dr. Brandon's earlier explanation, the terms progestins and progesterone are being used interchangeably. So it's very difficult to try to educate and, and disseminate information to a graduate of a pharmacy school or medical school for that matter to say progesterone, progesterone is not progestin, they're not the same thing. So that's an, an uphill battle and it, it does take time and I, I think one has to be placed in that situation for however they arrive there to see things differently. But but um, the, the trend is there, it's slowly and it, it continues. How big is the industry today? Well, it depends on whose numbers you read. The, of course, the big pharma pharmaceuticals are one of the biggest industries that we have. However, compounding um, medications are estimated with, to be only between 1% to 2% of all medications dispensed yearly in the U.S. That's amazing. But, but we have more regulations than any other sector of healthcare. That's truly amazing. Why wouldn't you be doing more of this and less of the other? Dr. Brannon, is that a dumb question to ask from a patient's perspective? If you asked Dr. Brannon 20 years ago, there's no difference, okay? Dr. Brannon, after 20 years of more education, there is a difference. And I'm gonna go back to the progesterone one. The famous study, the studies before the 2002 study said that hormones, generally hormones, decreased dementia and cardiovascular disease in women. That was the, that's why this study was done. And this WHI study was very interesting. It was 10,000 healthy women in the study. 5,000 dropped out. So now it's only 5,000 women. The average woman was 63 and a half. 13, 14 years of menopause, if there are benefits, have been missed. Half had high blood pressure, a half smoked, and a third or had a heart attack. Dr. Desai, when a world famous oncologist, a, a professor of mine, he said, this is not a good paper. But even in that paper, they didn't use estrogen, they used Premarin, which means pregnant female horse urine. It was 212 horse estrogens. Great for a horse, but not for a human. But there is some cross-reactivity. But the problem is, is when you have a different structure, then your body utilizes it differently, metabolizes it differently, 
and eliminates it differently. Here's the example. Estrogen has three pathways to get rid of your body. Very make it simple. Two, 16, and four. Two is anti-cancer. A bioidentical goes that direction. The synthetics go 16 and four, which is increased cancer. Mm. It's how detailed this gets. There's also an alpha receptor and a beta receptor. So it gets much more complicated this take Premarin. Provera, I can't stress enough to this. Provera is a progestin. I told you in this study it increased breast cancer 26%. Dr. Fiernero in France in 2005 and 2007 did two studies with over 134,000 women. In that study he gave bioidentical estrogen and synthetic Provera, bioidentical estrogen and progesterone, bioidentical. In the synthetic arm, it increased breast cancer 69%. Because remember, if the receptor site's blocked for over six months, it's not gonna do its function. That's why it's important to get, as Mayo Clinic says, a bioidentical structure is your body recognizes at same. So in my stupidity was, and my small brain was, well, don't I want the exact same structure my body used to make in the right dose it used to make? That's how your body can work optimally. So that's why I'm so focused on giving the body what it's used to having at the dosage or the levels it is and the constant release. That's where, that's where compound comes in. Some hormones you want to do a spike, some you want a steady state. Part of this reason we do this is for patients who are listening to be informed, but what make it simple for patients, what would you advise them to ask their physician especially when it comes to compounding. Dr. Amit? Um, yes, well, the first step is to, to become more educated, which um, anyone who listens to this podcast uh, by default will be by Dr. Brandon's excellent explanations. Yes, it's important to, to ask for your options. It's important to ask, hey, is, um, is there something in the world of compounding that can possibly benefit me better? That's one method. Another thing is to call different compounding pharmacies. Call and ask to the compounding pharmacist, ask to speak to the compounding pharmacist, and explain to them what you're dealing with, and listen to the uh, possible suggestions that they might have, and then you can evaluate and decide which path is correct for you. Go ahead, Jim. You mentioned earlier about regulation, and that's a double-edged sword, right? Because in a way, it's good because the ingredients going into the when you're compounding have been regulated, um, but it's also bad in the sense that it's regulated, right? So. Um, can you speak to that? You know, in your world right now, you know, what is the regulatory pressure and, and how do you handle it? Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's a, a, a very important point. So um, we are, we as in compounding pharmacists and pharmacies are governed by every single regulation that a typical, say, um, a retail pharmacy is governed by. And that comes in part from the Board of Pharmacy of whatever state they're, they're uh, located at, the Board of Pharmacies of whatever states they're sending something to, a medication to. Also, uh, we're regulated by the FDA, by the DEA, by OSHA and with various other agencies. So there's no shortage of, of regulations. And then if somebody is dealing with the insurance company, they have their own separate set of, uh, of uh, regulations, Medicaid, Medicare, everything. So everything that we were really regulated to a, to a great amount. And if that wasn't enough, there are bodies out there that are calling themselves credentialing bodies. They have their own additional separate sets of, of regulations. So some of this makes sense, I understand it. I'm a big fan of patient safety and efficacy. I'm a big fan of continual education and training of the staff for the sake of patient. But some of it just plain doesn't make any sense. For example, we're looking at a, a looming piece of legislation by the FDA that's going to limit 
how much, how many prescriptions a compounding pharmacy can mail across the state to, to the other state. Uh, I fail to understand how that has anything to do with patient safety. Um, so there, there are a lot of things that, uh, that are designed in chopping up at, at the compounding world. Different reports come out. There are scientists for hire, bodies for hire to come out with these uh, recommendations. And the important thing to remember is that many of these bodies, they're not actually physicians who treat patients. They're not pharmacists who have hands-on experience. They're very esteemed people, very smart people making these regulations. However, they don't apply to the world of compounding. Is this covered by insurance? Uh, it used to be billed, but not anymore because insurance companies are, of course, businesses and they're out there really not to take care of people, my humble opinion, but they're like any other business to, you know, anyways. But um, no, insurance companies do not pay. Most of them do not. And the ones that pay, there's probably one, maybe two that I know of. They pay at such cut rate um, rates that they don't even cover the cost of the compounding of the medication. It's crazy. It really is. Quick question on uh, not insurance per se, but when you decide to compound the drug, is it after the drug has gone generic? So during their patent protection phase, are you able to still compound that? Uh, no, we do not, and, and and that's an excellent question. Actually, another piece of legislation that has been out, uh, has been out since 2018, it's called um, uh, the uh, essential copies of a commercially available medication. So the FDA has put in place, and it tells compounding pharmacies that you cannot compound something that is commercially available unless the patient has allergies to it. So uh, whether they're on patent or not, this piece of legislation covers both of them. It has nothing to do with patient safety. But the interesting thing about that is we all know the best diagnosis in the world and the best medication on the world, they're not really useful if the patient cannot afford to purchase that medication. It stops right there. But unfortunately, they don't consider cost as an impediment, which we all know isn't a real impediment for some people in accessing that. So no, we cannot come uh, copy those. Back to insurance real quick. If people have an FSA plan on their insurance plan, is that are the drugs covered through there? Yes. Will they get reimbursed? Absolutely. Actually, we use their either FSA or HSA health savings um, card at the point of checkout. If it has a Visa logo on it or a MasterCard logo on it, done, no problem. Let me jump in real quick. I'm sort of slow. So I'm a big believer in entrepreneur and business. So company X invents a drug, spends billions to build this, I think the patent's 17 or 19 years. So when the patent's up, anybody could use it, except for compound people. Yes. Okay, let's make sure I got that straight. So you could stay within the system, yes. but not outside the system. Yes. Okay. I fail to see how any of this really helps the end user though. Well, it I, seems I, quite I, regulated. I, I can get into this whole idea of what well, we, we don't need okay. to. Yeah, okay. but, but and it's that, and, frustrating and if you're a patient. And I, and I want to get into, does the government have this authority? And what government level does it, local, state, or federal? But we lose focus on even all the government and political stuff. It's the individual is free or mm -hmm. not free. And I think what's happening is those individuals who are finding that they're not getting the benefit from their standard care or standard car maker, standard you know buy on the internet for your pillow, whatever it is, Choice is what we're looking for. Yeah. We want competition. Competition sharpens everybody, and by the way, lowers the cost to the consumer. Well, let's talk about what you do here at Optimal Bio, and that is, of course, the pellets, 
that are inserted in your patients, their bioidentical hormone replacement therapy is what you practice here. Are those compound pellets? Yes, and I want to go over why a pellet. It has to go again with with a, a couple things. First off is the very first time any scientist isolated testosterone in a human being was 1931. The very first study on a human being was actually released in 1935 on a woman, by the way, with testosterone. 37 was the first study um, on a man, on men, and the first time it was used in America was 1939. So it's been out there for 80 years, all right? That's very important, it's the longest. It is the most natural because it's the same exact structure. And the reason why we use the pellets we use is they're 99.5% pure 17 beta testosterone or estradiol in the estrogen cases. And the point other 5% is a binding agent, be either steric acid, which is a natural fat, or cholesterol, which is a natural fat. And they basically act, act as lubricants within the molding mechanism. They're not even absorbed. So that's why we use that. And the, stead, the steady state of it, it's a, it's a steady rise, a constant release, all have to do with physics because the circumference of it is diluted at a constant state called first order pharmacokinetics. So it goes very, very slow to the end. The shots, a couple of shots, example, the cipronate goes up three and a half days back and down. The oral goes to the liver, affects the coagulation mechanism and the dosing aspect of it. Much higher dose to get the dose to the blood level. So we're looking for route of administration and to mimic and to mimic the constant constant um, blood levels. There's also creams. The compounding creams, I think, are the second best down the line. I just get a much higher value and a more constant value with the pellet that goes through, the, uh, that says in the subcutaneous tissue. Now that differs completely from there is a FDA approved pellet. And I wanna spend time on that's one dose. We have multiple doses based upon the patient's needs. You cannot patent an organic molecule. 17 beta testosterone is an organic molecule. Steric acid is an organic molecule. So at the, the one that got approved puts a, a, a inorganic molecule called vinyl polypropanate. So that lowers the actual dose of the testosterone and adds an inorganic molecule. And this is interesting to me. The EPA says, don't let vinyl, a vinyl polypropanate touch your skin. But yet it's approved to be in skin. So I'm confused on both of those. Well, now I'm confused because if you're confused, I'm really confused. Well, Jim, you're you're a patient as well as you know a partner here. You also are well aware of all the different ways you can deliver, you know, the the hormone replacement. How do you feel about what's happening here compared to maybe some experiences elsewhere? Well, I think all of us in this room probably can can attest to the uh, the benefits of the uh, BHRT. Um, from my perspective, the pellet uh, is. I can't compare it to anything else, um, but based on what I read, uh, you know, if I do compare it to the other pellet, I would think that, you know, if you're going to try to customize a dose, you know, there's going to be a lot of the pharmaceutical pellet that's going to have to go into a human body to get the same results as the bioidentical pellet. And, you know, for myself uh, only, um, there's very little side effect. I mean, I know the FDA is worried about at time safety, and certainly uh, they look at efficacy as well, but they seem to focus a lot on safety. And, um, you know, I have experienced no safety uh, adverse event uh, with this uh, pellet. Um, uh, I, you know, to be honest, I mean, 24 hours maybe of icing, you know, the, uh, the spot where the uh, placement was made um, uh, is probably all I've ever had to do. And I know other people have different reactions, but I think at the end of the day, they're minor and they usually last a few days. 
And as long as I go out and lift 400 pounds and uh, run a marathon, you know, the minute after they've been uh, placed, I think they're in good shape. And I will say that, you know, one thing we need to talk about maybe in a different podcast is Dr. Bannon does have a unique uh, process of placing, which we should potentially patent this uh, going forward because it is seamless and it's much better uh, than it was um, a few years ago when I first started. Let me go over that real quick. There is a, um, a book called Testosterone out of Germany, 800 pages on the benefits of testosterone and the pros to cause the whole, it's a phenomenal book. And in the book, they said the best way to mimic a natural production of testosterone is the pellets. The downside is the actual placement because there's 12.6% of men could expel the pellets. Our rates are on 2%. I do think my technique is decent. Um, just I'm also a pelvic surgeon, so years of, of practicing that. So that's for sure. But what's interesting to me is this. When Jim brought up the point of how many pellets you need to get the doses we get, I want this to be really, really like in people's heads. July 1st of 2016, the, the, the government's recommendation of what a normal range was changed. So on June 30th, a low was 350 and a high was 1197. That's what was the range. First off, it's a five-fold range. That's for a male, on, correct? For, that's for male. On July 1st, it was a, a 264 and, and 916. So the question is, why did it change? Now, when I was in school 40 years ago, it was roughly 800 to 1300. So what got me into this about 50 years ago, my first question was, why are we lower? Okay, number one. So this is what's important to understand. In both men and women, testosterone converts to estrogen. Estrogen is the inhibitory that turns it all back off. So when everything's optimal, the estrogen controls how much is being made. The last 50 years in the environment, the thing called xeno, fake estrogens, are in the environment. So our body thinks we have more. These are, these are it's Roundup, atrazine, plastics, BPA, BPSs, soy. These things are fake estrogens. So the generation, which is interesting in OptoBio, about 25% of our practice is men and women under the age of 30, 35 range, because their levels are that low. But again, I don't wanna hear today, you walk in and, and Duke says 170 is normal, the military says 193. I don't wanna hear that's normal if you have the symptoms of low T. The question is, I want, when you ask, what do you ask your doctor? Hey doctor, what were the values 50 years ago? What it seems you're saying is that the government is scaling back what normal is. They're redefining what normal is. It is yes and no. These levels are real. We're lower because the environment's lowering them. Right. So your body is more optimal at a higher level. So these are still these are still physiological optimal levels 40 50 years ago. They'll call them super physiological today because everybody is lower. But that's why you have people on Viagra, on Zoloft, on Prozac over and over and over again because what testosterone does and estrogen does these hormones it's not like an antibiotic we talk about. It attacks one cell wall of a bacteria. It it, it has thousands of functions. Vitamin D affects 10, and vitamin D is also an anabolic steroid, affects over 10% of our genome. So it's so much more complicated than, than just you take this one thing as one function, it doesn't happen. But this is important to ask, why are we lower? And are we healthier for lower? And it's just the opposite. Infection, 
obesity, diabetes, and this COVID, the number one risk factor from dying of COVID, it's 19 fold higher is obesity. Number two is diabetes. Number three is lung disease. And these are things that are controlled by not smoking and eating properly. So when you look at this stuff, it's like, whoa, we have it. So why are men running around at 270 saying that's okay? Belly fat, you know, no desire, all this thing happens. It's not, we were more optimal then. So obviously filtered water, all kinds of stuff you can do, but you can't fix the environment, but you could make your body be better that's gonna thrive in the environment than just survive in the environment. Dr. Amit, did you wanna weigh in? Yes, thank you very much, Dr. Bannon. That's absolutely true. Just this week I had a call from a, a, a young gentleman who asked me if not going to sleep at night, having sleep issues, and um, what he described as having man boobs mm-hmm. was uh, could be a symptom of testosterone deficiency. And yes, they could be. And uh, so it's rampant. And as Dr. Brown mentioned, xenoestrogens, they do have a regulatory impact on them. And, and by the way, where do we get these, these ranges, normal ranges from? We go back as another example to the, to the uh, early 80s, the ranges for a normal thyroid gland function was one number, now it's a different number. So if you take somebody's blood sample, then are they normal now or are they underactive now? See, so we, we re- and, and the, the basic fundamental is, what do we do in practice? Do we try to fix the lab values or do we try to fix the patient? And we do use lab values as a guidance. When I came to uh, but fix a patient, uh, earlier this year, 2020, I had the pleasure of coming here and meeting uh, Dr. Brandon and his wonderful staff and team, and I decided to become a patient. I have been a patient of bioidentical hormone replacement restoration for a number of years, not only the pharmacist, but the patient, and um, I had been on testosterone topical cream, and my levels were good. They were at uh, above 1100. So I decided to, so I didn't come here because of lower levels, but I decided after reading Dr. Brandon's book that he, uh, uh, he was very experienced and I wanted to give it a try to see if it worked. So that was one of the best decisions that I had made for myself, investing in myself as a person. My levels are slightly higher than they than when they were. I've had two rounds of pellets, but my cognition, my power, my stamina, my libido, and just my zest and that oomph that's so hard to quantify, but it exists, it has skyrocketed. And I owe it all to Dr. Brannon and his wonderful patient and uh, wonderful staff, staff. And if it wasn't because of him, I would not have known this. And this is a first-hand testimonial. Real quick, you mentioned COVID. I don't want to get into a COVID discussion, but the hand sanitizers that we are literally bathed in these days, is that good for you? The studies show, you know, 20 to 30 seconds of warm, soapy water is superior to any hand sanitizer. Right, but isn't there a hormone effect on the... Now I was gonna have my next one. Back to our xenoestrogens. Xenoestrogens are actually in these hand sanitizers. Okay, now, on top of that, my lovely daughter said, the worst xenoestrogen out there is when you get your receipt. That's BPA, the dye. So now you're washing your hands in this hand sanitizer and grabbing a receipt. So the answer is yes. So don't use a credit card anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very good point you, you brought up, Jim, the hand sanitizers. And, and so when this COVID thing started, mm-hmm. uh, we kept asking our regulatory agencies that if we, the compounding pharmacies, now these are people who have, are licensed in making things and have access to the super, super clean stuff, if you could make hand sanitizer because 
it was a shortage if you recall you couldn't find it It, the price would go up every every 30 minutes so finally fda put out a guidance document guiding telling us that we could only and only make the spray and we could only use usp grade isopropyl alcohol and we could only use their formula which had glycerin which they said in in that formula glycerin may actually not do you a favor and here it can help the growth of bacteria we know that but we still want you to use it fantastic we did it we you know for those who who uh who um needed it months go by now on the fda website there's recall on more than 100 100 hand sanitizers they're being recalled the reason they are made with methanol or wood alcohol the stuff that's toxic if you drink it it can cause blindness Blindness, Mm -hmm. do you see so it's amazing how sometimes a regulatory body does not let the people who are licensed and educated in performing a function but they take it handed to other people for example um, the cosmeceutical um, uh, industry and have them make it this is one example nobody's broken i tell everybody they're all ferraris you can armor all your tires you can wax the paint all you want but you can't drive it without gas Mm -hmm. and we do gas we rotate spark plugs. We make sure that things so that you can actually drive. And that's why, to me, the objective data is important. It keeps us, so we can keep an eye. Like, like Ted, what's, Greg, what's the side effects of being too high? Well, gotta make sure your estrogen levels are in proper range, hematocrits are in proper range, your PSA. So that's what we do. But I, uh, Jim and I were talking about this years, a couple years ago, is he said he went to his doctor and said, hey, since at that time the standard was 1197, or whatever it was. What if I walk in and I'm 1205, what do you do? And the gym, the answer was the doctor said, I don't know. Because there's no, there's no too high. Right. Right? right. So, so that's, why, that's why it's so important. I, I can really get nerdy because the way the DNA makes the antigen receptor, there are some receptors that are more sensitive to others. Now, when, when DNA is made, there's a thing called nucleotides. And every, when, the, when your body reads this, this line of code, it has an endpoint, a period. Well, the, the period that makes the androgen, the testosterone receptor, ends in CAG. And when there's five of them at the end of it, your, your receptor's a lot more sensitive. So maybe a level of, of uh, 90, um, 950 is good. But if it's over 11, it's less sensitive. Now we don't do genome type testing here, but I'm just saying that's how sensitive and how detailed this is. So when a, so a guy walks in his office says, hey, your normal range, your, the, the, today's normal. You're 700, you should be doing great, or you're 500 or whatever you are, but I don't feel good. They're not even thinking about these kind of things. That's why individualized and individual choice to me is the key to all of this. Can I ask you about uh, metagenics? Is this supplement also a compound drug or not? It's a, it's a supplement, a vitamin, a nutraceutical. Depends what it is. Uh, in the sense, they have fish oil, they have probiotics. So, no, these are compound supplements or nutraceuticals. And we use metagenics because they have one of the purest organic farms they actually get their their base products from. They have a thing called uh, Metagenics Medical Institute, where it doesn't have their name on it. It's just pure white papers peer-reviewed white papers on every single product they have. And that to me is crucial, pure science. Dr. Amin, kick it off with you. Talking a lot about compound pharmacies and drugs. What would you say are the top five benefits of the compounds if you had to list them out for us? Oh, absolutely. The number one is gonna be individualized dosing. Um, that is, we give the right, the correct dose to the patient. The next one is gonna be reducing side effects because we're not all built um, the same. We, we function differently. Also, um, we can in compounding we can combine or eliminate the you know, more than one active ingredient, 
or um, or even excipients to get to the exact effect that the physician um, would like. Also, we can we can compound a pure form of product. For example, for somebody who has celiac disease or, or even lactose intolerance, then we can eliminate that lactose and lactose type materials not to um, initiate an inflammatory response for them. So those are some of the, the benefits. Also, we can, we can really hone in on patients' uh, absorption because we can swallow medicine or put it on ourselves, but what, what is important is how much of it is actually bioavailable to us. And we can help um, engineer them in such a way, whether using what, what delivery mechanism and agents to use to help increase or decrease that. Sometimes we don't want a lot of medicine, sometimes we want you know, less medicine. So we, those are some of the benefits. Dr. Brown? I would just repeat that because to me, what he just said is individual. Everything's individualized. And I know my patients are gonna get what I want, how we released, and the, res- the response we're looking for. To me, it's in- individualized is the word I use over all of this. Can anybody uh, start up a compound pharmacy? Um, any pharmacist in North Carolina can start, but um, as we know, not every pharmacist does, and frankly, not every pharmacist should. Um, compounding is a right of every pharmacist, but it's interesting to, to realize that most pharmacy schools in the nation do not even teach compounding. So there's uh, only a handful of schools in the country that teach compounding, and that is done at a basic level. So we need to get away from basic, uh, go to understand it at at a fundamental level, and even keep expanding on that knowledge. Um, it's, um, It's a process, and one really has to have a passion to get involved in it and to continue to evolve in it. Dr. Amit also is a chemist before a pharmacist. Yes. So that's why we love him, too. He's pretty brilliant. (laughs) I I am curious, though, if uh, you were put in charge for one day, because, see, it seems to me that this is certainly a great alternative. Not that it needs to replace anything, but it could be more popular. What would you do to change it? So that it would become more popular. Knowledge. I would. Um, I would certainly disseminate more knowledge about it, uh, both on the patient side and on the prescriber side and on the pharmacist side. And certainly, I would do away with. Uh, I, we don't need any more regulations. So I would not add any more regulations to this. And um, I would do. I would bring this the regulatory side of this to reason and to practice to ensure that the patient has knowledge, freedom of choice, and options. And manufacturers, U.S.-based or, or not? I think you may have answered this, but I'm, I'm not manufacturers sure. Manufacturers of uh, uh, commercially compound, available compound manufacturers. Now, now in compounding world, we do not manufacture. Right. So we're only talking about compounding pharmacies, and and yes, they're they're within the United States. Other com- countries have their own versions, mm-hmm. but yeah, we um, talk about the ones that are in the state. I want the biggest takeaways then for um, uh, the patients who have been listening. And why don't we start with the patient, Jim? Well, I'm, as always, go get your do your research, do your, get your information. Um, don't just blindly follow, you know, a doctor um, or even at Optimal Bio. Don't just you know. We're gonna give you information and you know, we want ask you to go out and, and ferret that information and decide for yourself what's gonna be best for you. Um, I will say that from, like I said earlier, the, the pellet uh, for me, you know, uh, there's very little adverse event other than ice, you know, uh, for a day that you have to do. And um, you know, I've, I've, I felt great on it. And uh, my wife has done well on the, uh, the compound pharmacy. 
situation. Get your own information and decide for yourself. Take control of your body because that's the most important thing you can do. That's good advice. Dr. Brennan? Yeah, at our, at our office, we actually at Upton Bio, when we have we have a one console fee that's good for 10, 20, 30 visits forever. We don't we don't ever charge that people come back. For me, placing the pellet is completely tertiary. Um, the treatment is so tertiary, it's why are we doing what we're doing? I think we bombard patients, we're not just with our book, we give them literature, talks about other ways, other applications. We give them literature on different types of you know, supplementation, on the pros and cons or whatever, because we want to just well-informed. Uh, and our, our name is not just some logo, we want optimal life, that's what we're looking for. Not just surviving, but truly thriving. So to me, it was Jim, Jim talked about, and we grow word of mouth, which has been beautiful, and we have a high recurrence rate of once you do this. So the, the what I would do if I was king would not be king, because I think the king's in the mirror. I think that's really important to understand that. The responsibility of whatever we do is in the mirror. So therefore, how important is your life? Take hold of it and educate yourself and ask holistic, allopathic, I don't care where you go, but understand it's important to be in charge of what you're doing to your body. Dr. Amit? Um, thank you. I think that asking is the most important thing that we can do as consumers and, and as patients. Asking opens the doors. Um, if one pharmacist or one physician does not know about your options, well, ask another one and keep asking, reading, researching. And I also would would um, um, would say, please don't take phrases such as, oh, just growing old graciously, this is normal, you're just getting old as your fate. That is not our fate. We're meant to be living, wonderful human beings with a lot of joy, a lot of energy, and a lot of oomph and zest in our lives. One last question. You've been in this a while. How does the future look to you? The future of compounding itself from a scientific view looks bright, looks wonderful. However, on the regulatory side, it's not as bright. The main three areas of compounding, which is um, hormone restoration or hormone replacement therapy, veterinary medicine and pain medication, um, compounded topical pain medications are under attack. And it, it feels at times that um, the scissors are at work to chop off and to um, make this smaller, smaller, and regulate it further, which um, I think it's important for anyone who has a pet, anyone who has used a compound or thinks, you know, he or she or their loved ones might use a compound to get involved and be thinking about the um, involvement in protecting our rights as, individual, uh, as individuals and as patients to have access to these compounds if we need them. Gentlemen, it was a pleasure. Unless you have anything else to add, I will just say thank you to all of you. Dr. Amit, of course, always a pleasure, and Dr. Greg Braddon and Jim Baker. And for those of you listening, we thank you for that. And of course, a lot of information available at our website. So please don't hesitate or pick up the phone and call and get in for a consult. We'll talk to you soon.